0: A number of years ago, when I was uh, a younger father, um, we would rent a number of videos to show our children. And one of the videos that um, I watched a couple of times was the old 60s version of Pollyanna. Anyone ever seen that before? Okay. Now, it's really kind of a fun story. Pollyanna is an orphan girl, and she goes to stay with her her aunt, the only living relative that she has, but her aunt is kind of really ultra-stiff and conservative and, and stuffy, and Pollyanna just looks at life with happiness and joy and all this kind of stuff, and it's quite a, a, you know, a conflict that is going on and a, a change that has taken place. And so she comes in and she talks about what she had learned, um, and that is that she loved to play the glad game, finding joy. And finding goodness in everything and finding what was happy or glad in every situation. So she begins to influence a number of people in the community. And what's intriguing to me, of course, is her influence and her impact on the character that is the Reverend in the story. And what's interesting in this is that as she goes to church on the first Sunday, the Reverend gets up to speak and he's preaching a sermon. Now, you may not know it if you're watching this, but it is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's a sermon that is full of, you know, hell and fire and brimstone and damnation and standing before God and not having anything to stand on, and it's just kind of this this weighty, powerful sermon. And so as the story goes on, she inserts herself into his head, and she begins to To kind of prod him and say, you know what, there's like over 800 verses that talk about rejoicing in God and that the people of the church would respond better to the reverend sermon if you would just simply focus on the good bits, finding the good in every man and laying off on the negative ones. Now, as I'm looking at the story, I'm thinking, did she count 800 verses in the Bible? Because she's just like a little, like seven-year-old or something like that. Now, this is where we get the expression, Pollyanna preaching or Pollyanna churches or Pollyanna Christianity. It's only finding the good in people. It's only focusing on the positive. It's only looking at that which might seem to be encouraging. And, of course, the reverend listens to Pollyanna, and he changes his methodology. And people become, they come to church and they start laughing. They start enjoying his messages. And the attendance increases. And Pollyanna is now the heroine of the whole story, because her good bits, her glad game now has influenced even the pastor. Now friends, the reality is that um, much of the church here in America, and probably even around the world, is much more comfortable talking about the good bits, talking about the glad bits, talking about the positive, and is really, really hesitant to talk about the negatives. Now, I find in the story here of Pollyanna, in that movie, that that this pastor stops preaching Jonathan Edwards' sermons. Well, first of all, he shouldn't be preaching anyone else's sermons to begin with, right? But this is Jonathan Edwards. If there's anyone in church history that knows what joy is, it's Jonathan Edwards who wrote a book called Religious Affections. And yet, you kind of get this idea then that this harsh preaching is really not what is necessary, not what God has called us to. And certainly, friends, if I were to get up here every Sunday and just talk about hell and sin and damnation, and, and my head my head would just kind of flurry with smoke, and you'd be like, oh, the whole time. It would be overwhelming. And you're saying, Pastor Rod, you do that all the time, right? No. <laughs> right, I understand that. But the thing is, that if, if I were that way all the time, I understand it would be overwhelming. But the reality is that much of the church wants to focus on the positive. And so the pastors capitulate to that and they don't talk about the negative. And the folly of being positive, however you want to look at it, is it's not being honest. How can we talk about the gospel being good news if we're not honest about what sin is and why the good news is even there? You can't just say, well, you know, just pray to Jesus to ask him into your life. If you're not acknowledging your sin, no conversion has taken place. And we're fooling people to think that they're part of the body of Christ when we're not addressing the real issues. So the folly then of being positive is we're not being honest. And we as a, I as a pastor and we as a church must be honest about what God says in his word. And too often the church is so excited to talk about the things you can get from Jesus not necessarily the things that ultimately are the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now, Jesus, however, always paints with a realistic and honest brush. And that's what he's doing here with the disciples um, in the upper room here in this farewell discourse. He is preparing his disciples for what is to come. And the disciples' world is going to be turned upside down. Jesus has been talking about it. They've they've listened, they've heard, but they don't know the extent of it yet. And he's preparing them, and he wants them to be ready. So the question here is, what is the reason for Jesus' instruction in the upper room? Now, this is where um, we want to read now John chapter. Uh, 16 and verses 1 through 4. We're going to begin there today because it talks really and lays the, 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 the lay of the land as to why Jesus is even interacting with the disciples in this way. He says in verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So he said these things for two reasons. Number one, to keep them from falling away. Secondly, to prepare you for their hour. Notice it says their hour. In other words, the hour of Suffering, the hour of persecution. Now, whose hour? Who's the there? It's the world's hour. It's the cosmos. You guys remember Carl Sagan? The cosmos. Remember, yeah, right? But he's talking about it in the sense of, you know, the physical world. When John and Jesus uses the word cosmos here, they're talking about that system of... Uh, order that is in rebellion against God and is under the direction of Satan. So let's put it this way. All of the disciples have been called out of the world. Everyone who's left is part of the world. Jesus ultimately is going to say that. So it's the system of of order that is in rebellion against God and under the influence or the direction of Satan, it is also a system of thinking, of attitudes, of belief that is opposite or contrary to everything that God is about. So when you take the friends of Jesus out of the world, you are left with those who are in rebellion against God. They are the ones who um, are abiding, who are who hate those who are abiding, and they are the ones who hate those who are abiding in his love. They abide in his life, they abide in his love. We looked at that already. Jesus says to his disciples, this is what it looks like to abide in my life, right? The vine and the branches, right? Some bear fruit, some don't bear fruit. The ones that bear fruit are abiding in me. And then the next analogy he uses talks about friends. This is, they're the ones that are abiding in my love. But the ones that are abiding in his life and his love are also the ones that are ultimately abiding in his legacy, And the point of the legacy here is this, that it all points back to Jesus, and the reason that the world hates you ultimately is because it hates Jesus. That's the legacy. It all goes back to him. Jesus doesn't want his friends to fall away. They have been told that one was going to betray him. They they had just been told about the vine and the branches, and there were some branches that were going to be cut off because they're not bearing fruit. And John, in his first letter spells out the seriousness and the scandal of falling away. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. This is what he says. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Right? They went out from us. It seemed like they were part of the vine and the branches. But ultimately it was made clear that they weren't. And there's a warning here that they would not fall away. And certainly there is one who would be falling away. And who would that be? Judas. He hasn't been revealed yet. They just know that someone's going to betray him. Now just think about it. You've been working for three years with a group of men. You've been shoulder to shoulder doing ministry and taking care of all sorts of different things. And in that last hour, one of you is going to betray? Think that'll have an effect on you? Of course it will. It's going to rock your world. And then Jesus being arrested, that's going to rock your world. So he does not, secondly, want them to, or he does want them to remember, especially in the hour of persecution and hatred, that what they're experiencing is because they are abiding. So because we are his, and this is what we were told earlier. Because we are His, we are in Him, and He is in us. And that, 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 that picture and that reality is such an incredible perspective of what's going on. That we are in Him, but He is also in us. Now, we're just kind of laying the land here to help us understand what's going on. This is not a sermon that Jesus is giving where He's saying, Choose whom you will serve. This is... A message Jesus is giving to his disciples saying this, I have already chosen you, so this is what you will be facing. Huge difference. He's not saying, you know, so if you want to continue on following me, here's your choice. He's like, no, 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 you already have. I've already chosen you. So this is what you're going to face. Now, there's no going back. There's only pressing on. He's already spoken about this when he said, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know what happened to the crowds when he said that? They turned away. <laughs> they left. Multitudes left him. And there's just this rabble group of, of men that he is left with. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, again, we're told this whoever does not Bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Cannot. So now in this passage, John 15, 18 through 16, 4, we find Jesus giving four insights, four insights to prepare and to protect his disciples from the coming persecution. And here are just the, the four words that we're going to look at today that we'll be fleshing out. Um, Hatred and persecution are inevitable, they're terrible, and we're going to look at what that looks like. They're they're respectable from a certain perspective, and they're also ultimately bearable, because God is allowing us, He's ordaining us to go through those times. Now, just a couple of words here. The idea of hatred is an issue in the heart. It literally means to kill in the heart. So this is a heart attitude. Hatred, it takes place in here. And it is the fuel, then, that results in persecution. So persecution is the fruit of a heart that is full of hatred. And I just want to pause here and just kind of paint a picture. Because we're going to find this out as we go through here. The world hates you if you're a believer. And the reason maybe you're not feeling persecution today is likely because we're living in a society where there are laws and there are attitudes that somewhat restrain the freedom for that hatred to come out. But you find when a society changes or you have a dictator in charge and he changes the rules, then all that hatred comes pouring out and there's freedom to persecute. Now, the idea of persecution here is to systematically organize a program to harass people, to cause them to suffer, ultimately resulting in things like murder and extreme suffering Um, But those two words are just helpful for us to recognize that one is the source and the other one is the fruit. So now we begin uh, what I'm calling the inevitable reality of persecution. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The construction of this verse in the Greek language means that something is implied. Let me read it as it should be understood. If the world hates you, and it does, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's the idea of the construction of this Greek sentence. Or to say it another way, since the world hates you, it's implied, the understanding is there, right? They kind of paint a picture here. If I were sitting down with 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick and saying to him today, now, if you're going to be playing football against the Baltimore Ravens, you need to watch out for their... Well, the point is, if you're going to be playing against the Baltimore Ravens, and you will be, right? It's the same idea. It's an understood, this is the reality of what's going on. So we continue on. This is a fundamental um, reality of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The world hates you and friends, I, I mean this in all kindness, I mean this in all graciousness, but we must receive that and get over it. The world hates you. Now, did I say that? Yes, I did, but I'm only repeating what someone else said, right? And who is it that said it first? Jesus. So I'm just telling you what he says, but we kind of read through. That's oh, all, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, the world hates me. Just talking maybe just about them. And No, the world hates you, and the sooner we recognize it, embrace it, and accept it, the easier our adjustment to life and willingness to submit to his word will be because we're not always going to be striving to be liked by the world. Ultimately, friends, the world doesn't like you. It kind of goes against the grain of how we do ministry then, doesn't it? I want them to like me first. I want them to welcome me into their community, and we should do some things that they will like us. Listen, if we're walking with God, we're going to have every reason for people to like us as far as we're decent people, we're loving people, we're gracious people, but that's not the basis for their hatred. And so Jesus then is going to give some counsel as to the reasons why they hate you. He's, he's establishing the fact that they do. But now the question is, why? Why is persecution inevitable? We want to begin, first of all, in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. All right? But because you are not of the world, well, how did that take place? Did I just decide I don't want to be a part of the world? What does Jesus say? But I chose you out of the world. He chose them out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The, reason, the first reason the world hates us is because of your election. Now, I'm not trying to force a theology on this text. Jesus says to his disciples, I chose you out of the world. He says in other places, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Let's just get this clear. All right? I chose you. And the fact that you are chosen, the fact that you are one who has been chosen to be a follower of Christ is offensive to the world. Because you are a friend of Jesus and have been chosen out of the world, that world hates you, and this is a plain reality. Friends, as we looked at this last week, it's the passage prior to this, says, love one another, they keep His commandments, they know Christ, and, and they believe what He says, and they're chosen by Christ out of the world. That's just what friends of Jesus look like. That's what they experience. And so you and I are no longer like the world. There's something uniquely different about us. Our interests have changed. Our values have changed. We look at things completely differently. Our thinking has changed. Our purposes in life have changed. Our very nature has changed. We are radical. Different than the world. We really are not running in the same lanes with the world. In fact, we are going in a completely opposite direction. Because of God's sovereignty and drawing us to Himself and breathing life into us, we have repented of our sins, which means we have gone completely the opposite direction. So the world's going this way and we're going that way. And we're trying to say, hey, like me. Ah, boom, getting hit. But we think that l- the world liking us is the goal, is the purpose. That's why John says in his first letter, "Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you." First John three thirteen. I like what D. A. Carson says. A couple of things on this: the world is a society of rebels, and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the King to whom all loyalty is due. Former rebels who have, by the grace of God, uh, grace of the king, I should say, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. See, by our very nature have been chosen out of the world, they do not like us. And a lot of it is, you know, when, when we're walking with Christ and we're, we're changing how we think, we're changing our behavior, they're looking at us and saying, "What's up with you?" And that change is a means of confrontation to their lifestyle choices, to their conscience, to their sin. James Boyce reminds us, nothing so stirs up the hatred of the world of the worldly mind than the teaching that God is sovereignly electing someone to salvation and not electing another. So the simple fact that you are a Christian is enough reason for the world to hate you and persecute you. The second reason is this, because of our association ultimately with Christ. Look at verse 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, if they persecute the master, they're certainly going to persecute the slave, right? If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they, know, they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus ultimately is the reason for the persecution and for the hatred. We are associated with Christ, and there's this guilt by means of association. So the reason the world hates Christians is because it hates their master. Now, the world's hatred towards believers is not simply because we are a group of people who happen to call ourselves Christians, who happen to have differing lifestyles and values. Their hatred exists because they hate Jesus. Now, let's examine this a little further as we go through John's Gospel. Have your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 5 and verse 16. See, Jesus is only... Repeating what he has already experienced with the disciples. John 15, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus was already being persecuted. Chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. John chapter 7 and verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 7 of John 7, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. John 7, verse 32, the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Chapter 8, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. Not just for target practice, they picked up stones to stone him, all right? To murder him. Chapter 10, verse 31, the same thing. They picked up stones to stone him. Chapter 11, verse 47 through 53, they're plotting to kill him. They're plotting to arrest him. Eventually they will. They'll get him. They'll beat him. They'll scourge him. They'll crucify him. They hate him. And if they hate me, he says, well, certainly they're going to hate you. Just want to encourage you with some good bits, okay? And the writer of Hebrews appeals to us by saying, chapter 12, verse 3 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So we consider Jesus, we consider the suffering he goes through, so that we are encouraged because we are going through trials of our own, and sometimes it's persecution in particular. And as believers, we identify with Jesus by sharing in his sufferings. That's why Philippians 3.10, where Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That word know is ginoska, which means to experience. So it's a knowledge by means of experience. So I know him and the power of his resurrection, which we experience because we have new life in Christ, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So we're partners together in Suffering is what Paul says. That's the second reason, because of our association with Christ. That's why the world persecutes us. The third thing is this, because of his conviction, through his word and his works. And notice this distinction here between word and works, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, there's the word, They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father Now let's just step back and recognize what jesus is not saying he's not saying that up to this point and before i open my mouth in front of them they were not guilty of sin what he's exposing here is this that over time the jews had drifted in their theology they had added to god's revelation and they had gotten to the place where they were they had become a settled religious system and their, their behavior, their hypocrisy, their selfishness, their partiality, their bigotry was all kind of covered and seemed right under that religious system. But Jesus comes and he confronts them. What are you talking about healing on the Sabbath? Why can't I heal this blind man? Why do you have such a problem with and he And as, as he speaks to them, They do not like what he says to the point that they want to kill him. He challenged them regarding the healing on the Sabbath. They wanted to kill him. He told them their works were evil. They hated him for it. He told them that his teaching was not his but from the Father, i.e., their Jewish God, and they wanted to arrest him, to snuff him out. When he claimed to be God, they picked up stones to stone him. His very words exposed their sinfulness, and they did not like it one bit. So he's just reminding the disciples who were there all along, who heard it, who saw it. And if we believe his words, then we are also bringing conviction on them. and They do not like it one bit. Years ago, during the time of the uh, Africa Inland Mission, there was a um, there was a, a missionary who interacted with an African chief, and that chief's wife came to where that missionary was, and they had a, a mirror on a on a tree, and this uh, chief's wife had never seen a mirror before, and she looked and she asked the missionary, "Well, who is this looking at me from this tree?" And the missionary, kind of like understanding what was going on, said, All right, "I got to explain this. That's you're looking at yourself in this mirror." And she did not like what she saw. And this person's all scarred and just, you know, didn't look good at all. But she'd never seen her reflection like that before. And so she, she said, you know, I want to buy this from you. And the missionary's like, I don't know if I want to sell that to you at all. No, no, please, please, let me, let me buy it. Let, how, much, how much do you need to sell it to me? And so the missionary finally gave in and, and settled on a price, and she took that, that mirror Fiercely, she said, I will never have it making faces at me again. And she threw it down and broke it into pieces. Thinking that if I just break it and if I don't look at it, the problem is over. Now, friends, that is how ungodly society in rebelling against God views his word. They would just rather snuff it out. They would just rather get rid of it. They'd find all sorts of ways to undo what it says because they do not want to look at the mirror of what it says because it convicts them of their sinfulness. And so, friends, we who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who love His Word, if we say we believe the Bible, what does that do to them? It boils up because they want nothing to do with the Bible. They don't want to be under the oppressive conviction that the Bible brings in their lives. Now not only did his words expose their sin, but also his works. He says in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Throughout John's gospel, and you can look at the other gospels, his miracles, his signs pointed to the fact that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And they exposed by virtue of of him performing those miracles and signs, that he was authority, that he was speaking from God. So it reinforced the message. It wasn't the sign itself, but it was the message that was coming through. But they both worked hand in hand. And so his words and his works are there to convict men of sin. And that's why the world hates you. We can reduce the world's hatred of Christ's followers to this. The world hates Christ's followers because it hates Christ. And the world hates Christ because it hates God the Father. Okay? Just what the passage says. All right? The world hates you, it hated me first. And the reason the world hates me is because it hates the Father. That's what Jesus just said. Now friends, we should not be surprised. Now part of the problem is, I don't know that most of us have actually really ever experienced persecution. I mean, you have that you know WWJD sticker on your car years ago, and you're driving around, and someone rolls down the window and says, I don't know, what would Jesus do? You're like, oh, I'm persecuted. We don't know what persecution is really like. We read about it. We'll talk about it here, but let's just allow the text to tell us a little bit what Jesus says here is is that it looks like. So secondly now, um, second insight for these disciples is this, the terrible nature of persecution. It's real, um, and it comes in a variety of forms. But he identifies two here, verse 2 of chapter 16. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So we have this, these two forms, excommunication and murder. Now, you might say, oh, let's brush by excommunication. Now, uh, in a Jewish society, excommunication is a big deal. Now, I, I want us to, to kind of get our modern context out of our mind. A typical Jew was not walking around with his Old Testament in his, you know, in his, in his backpack saying, well, you know, I don't need the synagogue, I'm going to read it for myself. No, the synagogue was the place where the Word of God was, that's where it was read. And if you wanted to hear the Word of God, that's where you had to go. So, if you were excommunicated, you were put out of the synagogue, you couldn't worship at the synagogue, you couldn't hear the Word of God being taught. So, this excommunication was taking place, but it remove them from the spiritual life of Israel. Also, it it meant being removed from the social life of Israel in that you would likely lose your job. If you were self-employed, you likely would lose your customers because the synagogue family would shun you. You are officially excommunicated, which means, hey, listen, this person is in disobedience. They're out of the synagogue. Have nothing to do with them. There goes your business. And people will walk right by your stall. They won't buy your stuff. It's all sitting there. It's all good. It's all at a good price. But they'll go spend more money and get it from this person. The quality is less because you've been excommunicated. Your former friends will shun you. They even denied an honorable burial for those who are excommunicated. So friends, it is a big deal in that particular context. And it is a form of persecution. But the second one is probably what we're more familiar with, and that is this whole idea of murder. This kind of persecution wasn't happening at the time of Jesus. He's really looking ahead and saying, listen, this is coming. It was about to come with him, but it's coming down the road. And so the disciples here are, are listening uh, uh, to Jesus speak, not knowing that their lives would end up as martyrs. In fact, the early church fathers record for us um, each of the disciples' um, experience of death. Um, and you might want to say, okay, this is tradition, but this is not tradition based on some, something that's fabricated. It's, tr- it's tradition where we may not have all the specific details, but we have the sense of what took place here. And, and we have, you know, there's it, it, a good bit of truth here. And here, here just from, from the, the church fathers, here, here is what happened with the disciples or the apostles, you might say. And just just kind of listen to this. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia. He was killed by a sword. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. You can choose which form of punishment you want, by the way, as we go through here. Luke was hanged in Greece as a result of his witness. Peter was crucified upside down. James the Just uh, was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple, hit the ground, was still alive, and he was bludgeoned to death. Um, James the Greater uh, was beheaded at Jerusalem, But the soldier tradition says that was with him uh, during all of that time he was witnessing to and the soldier by the time of his actual execution overcome by conviction declared his new faith in 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 christ to the judge knelt beside him and also was beheaded for his faith as we continue on andrew was crucified but the unique thing about andrew is it took him two days to die and for two days he preached from the cross to those who were there willing to come to listen. Bartholomew, also Nathaniel, he was whipped to death for his preaching in Armenia. Thomas was speared. Um, Jude was killed with arrows. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death. Paul was tortured then beheaded. John, well, he wasn't martyred. So he got off scot-free, right? No, no. I don't know the last time you were boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil, Um, but he was, and ultimately he was sent to the island of Patmos, which, by the way, was not a vacation location. Um, It was a work camp um, in Patmos. So these guys ultimately experienced what Jesus was talking about. (laughs) That's the point here, okay? now As we look in the Gospels and we see the disciples, the disciples are, in a sense, a a picture of, for They were like the mini-church that ultimately will develop and grow because they were apostles and establishing what was spoken to them was also revealed for our benefit because we are also going to suffer, and that was true in the early church because the Romans ultimately would persecute the, uh, the, the Jews at that point in time or say the Christians. Under Nero in particular, the, that Rome was up in flames, and if you remember the story, He wanted to kind of, he was kind of a crazy guy anyway, but he ended up blaming the Christians for it. And the result of him blaming the Christians is the mob turned on the Christians and the persecution began there. And ultimately, um, they were chased down, many of them killed, a lot of them were thrown in the arena. Nero is known for actually having parties at his house where he would wrap people up in animal skins and he would use Christians as torches to make sure the party was nice and festive. It's the kind of vile attitude that is a result of hate fully expressed and fully exposed and fully directed at the followers of Christ. Under Domitian, uh, many Christians were brought together and thrown into the arenas and were killed um, by animals and just for sport. So we could just go through the history of the church is rampant with story after story, both of excommunication and terrible murders. And just to kind of bring it down, into the context of Scripture, go to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, please. Because I've given you some stuff from from history, and we can say, oh, there's some truth, there's not truth, but friends, there's been persecution, tons of persecution. But even the writer of Hebrews lays it out for us, beginning at chapter 11, verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts, about in deserts, and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Friends, this is is what they had to look forward to. But we in America are so blessed by God's favor to us that we think that what we're experiencing is true Christianity. (laughs) And we're fat. We're full of stuff. And we're happy and we're content and we're lazy in our Christianity. And the idea of being persecuted is overwhelming to most of us. We do not comprehend it. We do not understand what it means. Yeah, I realize you may have a coworker that is obnoxious, doesn't like the fact that you're a Christian. There's a small form of persecution. I might, I'll use Paul's expression, your light affliction. Persecution is what we're talking about here. And friends, this kind of persecution has taken place today all around the world. Just pick up a, a copy or go on the, on the Internet to the Voice of the Martyrs, and you will find out that it is prevalent Okay? We just happen to live in our cushy neighborhoods and we don't experience much of it. So it is a reality, and that's the point here. It's a, it's a terrible um, uh, reality that uh, Christians experience. The next thing is this. It flows out of the same passage of Scripture here, the respectable motives for persecution. Again, look at verse 2, if you would, please. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. What is that saying? I'm doing this for the glory of God. Now, let's pause here and let's just think. I think what Jesus is saying here, because this is what he says, is they actually think that they really are doing this for God. Not some kind of a pretext, but they really believe this is what God has called them to. They're so deceived in their thinking because they are not listening to his truth. They don't understand what the Father has revealed, that they actually believe that what they're doing in persecuting Christians is what glorifies God. And so as I look over history and the present, I see the world hating and persecuting Christians under different names. And the first one, of course, is the name of religion, under the name of religion. We're not going to spend too much time here, but this is true in places like the Middle East where Christians are persecuted and tortured and murdered, all in the name of Islam. Now, just a little side note. I would hate to hear of Christians who are persecuting Muslims. When was the last time you heard that? That a whole country was just overtaken by Christians just going around and hacking Muslims to death. No, but you flip it around, and it's par for the course, is it not? Places like India, remember Odessa, Indonesia, Philippines. It's going on, all in the name of religion. That's just a few. The next name is this, the name of politics. Now, I use that. It's more ideology, but it comes, it fleshes out in the idea of politics. Just think about the communist China The former Soviet Union and their goal there to stamp out Christianity and for the good of the country, for the good of the people, right? Let's get rid of the Christians. Let's get rid of the Christians. In my time in Russia, I interact with lots of students who served in the army. I had a couple of students that actually had been um, uh, pretty high up in the KGB, and they confessed to me that when Christians would go off And go to boot camp, they were the ones that were picked on. They were the ones that were treated like animals. They were the ones that were beaten up by everyone else. And it was considered, they were just considered to be the lowest of the low of the low. In particular, if you were a Baptist. Now, over there, Baptist means the evangelical. But in the name of politics, there's persecution. Third one, in the name of society, it is the minded Christians that are plaguing our culture, forcing their views on marriage, abortion, homosexuality, morality in general. They are the problem. You see the writing on the wall? You see the way in which the culture is moving? It's no longer looking at the issues, it's looking at the people. Those Christians. Those right-wing fundamentalists. How do you define that? Well, we... Believe the Bible to be God's Word. Christian. Because I understand, if you truly believe that, you come with an ideology that flows out of that. That is, if you're truly part of the vine. <laughs> and so society looks on Christians with disdain. Now just a couple of recent examples Chick fil A. The president of Chick-fil-A didn't stand up and go, I can't stand mixed marriages. Is that what he did? No, he just kind of gently and graciously shared his belief that was rooted in Scripture. And the world just turns upside down, right? Tim Tebow played football. Okay, so he went down on his knee. And almost every interview I've seen with him, he speaks graciously, he's gentle, he's kind. But oh, he's a Christian. Boy, they pick on him. Why? Simply because he has grounded roots in truth. See, that's that's the bottom line. And it ultimately just gets there. In the name of society, attack mocked, shunned for no other reason than they believe what the Word of God says and are willing to say it and live it in a gentle and loving way. So, you don't have to get angry about your Christianity. Just living your Christianity in a God-honoring, Christ-like way is an offense. The last one is this, in the name of enlightenment. I use that word to describe this, this arena of Intellect, scholasticism, education it's interesting to me that if you were to I don't know if anyone's done the study, but if you were to just to measure the leaders of the colleges across the United States, I am sure that you would find a very very small amount of Christians that were even able to serve in that kind of leadership capacity because there's an idea in scholasticism that if you are a Christian, You don't think. How could you even think logically and be a Christian? You're a simpleton. You have living life based on a crutch. How can we take you seriously in the arena of academia? And primarily because the enlightened educational culture cannot comprehend reasoning. And a reasoning and thinking Christian. They just cannot put those two things together. And so, by and large, Christians are kept outside of that proclaimed enlightenment group. That's not uh, true across the board. I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but by and large, that's the case. Now, Jesus continues on, and he gives his disciples now some principles that I think help them to bear under the coming persecution. So I'm calling these the bearable principles, or get, sorry, bearable perspectives of persecution. Four reasons why we can endure hatred and persecutions. We can endure hatred and persecution because, first of all, God is sovereign in spite of, um, in spite, I should say, of persecution. God is still sovereign. Look at chapter 15 and verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You, you get that? Well, how can you say this is sovereign? God's sovereign. He's saying, listen, there was a prophecy, and that prophecy, what? Must be fulfilled. They're going to hate me without a cause. It's all part of the unfolding plan of God. He is sovereign in what is taking place. The prophecy of God was being fulfilled through their hatred and persecution. But even though that is taking place, God is still on His throne, is He not? He's not abandoned us. He's not punishing us, unless He is punishing us. You Get my point there. All right. Sometimes we are experiencing discipline as children. But likely He's not punishing us, He is bringing glory to himself through our suffering. God is still sovereign. And friends, just the sovereignty of God to me is one of the greatest comforting truths that I know that is revealed in God's word. If God were not in control, life would be chaos. Now, I don't understand it all. I can't comprehend how he can be aware of everything that's going on, but it's what he says that he does so i believe it and i rest in it and it fuels me to live for his glory secondly another reason why we can bear under in this persecution we're partners in his suffering this is what the apostle paul wanted to share in his suffering listen when he is ridiculed it affects us does it not Were you watching that stand-up comic and he starts going off on Christian jokes? Doesn't that affect you? Aren't you like, ah, ooh, turn it off? When his name is used in vain, don't you cringe? When his word is scorned, we're upset. When Christ is the butt of an off-color joke, our blood begins to stir. When Christians are persecuted, there is part of us that aches for them. We may not know them, they may be across the world, but we're hearing about it and we're saying, why? And we connect with them on a level because they're part of the body of Christ. When his truth revealed in his word is trodden underfoot and presented as evil because it hinders man's sinfulness and their freedoms to exercise their own sinful desires we are cut to the core because this is God's truth and we're 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 angered but we're <laughs> we're burdened at the same time as all these emotions kicking in why because we are sharing in his suffering we're not saying well yeah okay i got my ticket to heaven but you take care of those things no when we have been drawn to the family of God, we are connected to what the family of God is experiencing and to the master, the head of the family of God and who he is and what he represents. We share in the suffering of Christ. The third thing is this. Persecution validates our identity in Christ. Now, persecution, as long as it is because of our faithfulness to Christ, is evidence that we abide in his life, and in his love. And so abiding in his legacy means that we embrace the suffering under persecution as evidence and assurance that confirms that we belong to him. So I just, I just caution us here, you can experience persecution because you're just obnoxious, right? You can per- experience persecution because you are a sinful Christian. I'm not talking about talking here about persecution that you experience simply because you are a child of God. And if that is true, when you experience that persecution, you're not trying to do anything except for be what God's called you to be. It's confirmation that you truly belong to Christ. Now, see, these, these are affirmations. These are promises. These are encouragements for the disciples. I'm sovereign. I know what I'm doing. Here's the plan. Here's the purpose. All right? We're partners together in the suffering, so that when you're suffering, I'm suffering, and when I've suffered, you're suffering. This is all part of what it means to be in Christ and to, for me to be in you, right? We pers- this persecution validates that what you are is authentically a Christian. The last one here, though, we jump back to chapter 15 in verse 26 and 27, and I'm saying this. It is the Holy Spirit who will witness through us, and I put it in, in, in my notes here a little differently. The Holy Spirit comes as our helper and ultimately then witnesses... And, verse 27, you also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, it's interesting that that is dropped right in the middle of this context of what it means to live life under this umbrella of persecution. And the promise here is this, that if we experience persecution, we have already been told that we are in him and he is in us. And how is he in us? He's in us by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? And as we're going through the the suffering, what does the Holy Spirit do? He is at work through us accomplishing His purposes, being that witness. And Jesus specifically says to the disciples, and you are my witnesses too. And friends, when we are going through persecution, it is so often a great opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel. How many times did one of the apostles stand before an official because they were on trial and they were able to testify Of the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done, why it's important, why I believe. Now kill me if you want to, but it's on you now, right? I mean, he couldn't even got an entrance except for the fact that arrested and brought before the king. And friends, we rejoice because we may, you know, we may be concerned about our you know, our portfolio and our kids' education, all that kind of stuff. God is concerned about those things, but he is ultimately concerned about his purpose being accomplished and him being glorified. And that may come through persecution. And if that persecution comes, friends, there are things that we hold on to. The fact that God knows what he's doing, the fact that we are joined as partners in suffering with him, the fact that this confirms that we belong to Christ, and the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work. And so, whatever he ordains in my life is what? Is right. That's what we sung about earlier. Now, let's conclude with these just a couple of thoughts. Jesus has said, and these thoughts are really ultimately for our encouragement, Jesus says, since the world hates me, it will hate you. Don't be surprised. He says, since the world persecutes me, which again is the fruit of that hatred, it will persecute you. Don't be surprised. And I kind of skipped over this because I wanted to save it for now, but there is just this wonderful promise, this wonderful truth that is in the, the context of this passage. Look at verse 20, if you would, please. He says here, if they, talking about the word, the world, kept my word, they will also keep yours. In the midst of this persecution, when you testify, when you proclaim, when you represent the God of this universe, Jesus is Messiah, and the gospel comes through your lips, there will be some who will receive that word, who will abide in that word, and they also will keep yours, he said. Friends, that is encouraging to me because he knows what he is doing. Since some have kept my word, then some will keep yours. Now, I'm not saying bring it on because I wouldn't ask that on anyone's life. I'm not saying, you know, we're not real true believers unless we are experiencing persecution. I mean, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution, right? We understand Scripture says that. But I'm not saying, okay, we're ready now to go out and be you know, chased by tigers and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't throw it on because there's plenty of Scripture that talks about being a father and being a mother and raising children and living our lives and you know, tending the crops and doing all those things. But in, in the context of living in a society where there is persecution, Jesus gives specific guidance and help and encouragement here that, This may be an opportunity for you to open up your mouth and testify, and surprisingly, there are some of that world that will receive it. And they wouldn't have received it except that you went through persecution. They wouldn't have received it except that you were the object of their hatred and their persecution, and it was an opportunity for you to open up your mouth. So here's the central reality that Jesus gives his disciples. When persecution comes, and it will, you will have great opportunity to share my word, to share my gospel. Some will receive it, so press on. Be careful not to fall away. Be ready to endure for his name's sake. I'm going to be leaving. Now, turn if you would, please. Actually, you don't have to. You can look up at the screen. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, just a book of encouragement, he says here at the beginning of the book. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, that's what we've been talking about today, right? So through Christ we share abundantly in in comfort too, right? Life is not all persecution. It's not all happiness either. But when we are persecuted, we also experience the comfort that comes only from God. And that that wonderful book is a book written to comfort people who have suffered and experienced persecution and suffering. In particular, Paul reflects on the things that he has experienced. And friends, today, In this moment, as we continue on in our service, we're going to be thinking about ultimately what was done to Jesus as he was persecuted, as he was murdered, he was placed on that cross, and he hung there. But everything that God ordains is right. And he hung there, not simply as a martyr, but as the substitute for me and for you. He paid the sin for mankind. And Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures tells us that if we recognize that Jesus has been pursuing us, He's drawing us to Himself, He's sharing with us the fact that He died on the cross for our sins. He presents Himself as the Lamb who needs to be slain. He is that sacrifice that was necessary once for all. And He died in our place, shed His blood, gave his body, and we who have embraced him as our Lord and Savior have the certainty and the confidence of life with him forever. And having him as our master and our Savior and and the one who guides us, and having insight and awareness as to what his word teaches, friends, we have much to celebrate. And Today, as we partake of the Lord's table, let us be mindful of the persecution that Jesus received, but it was purposeful. (laughs) Because that suffering and persecution had us in mind. And God desired that for our good, for our benefit. So we rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your gospel. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you you paint an honest picture, Lord, for us. And certainly, Lord, we we rejoice about the fact that in you we have life and we have satisfaction and you are the bread of life and you are the the one who satisfies our thirst. Lord, all those things are wonderful and joyful. At the same time, Lord, you want us to be mindful that as we embrace you, that with that comes your legacy of one who is hated by the world. So, Lord, may we not be surprised, but may we be strengthened and encouraged and established in the truth of that reality today, knowing that your hand is at work accomplishing your purposes. And, Lord, now as we celebrate the Lord's table, we ask, Lord, that you would give us humility. We ask, Lord, that as we prepare that we would consider sin in our life, and, Lord, we would confess it so that we don't take the Lord's table in a manner that makes it seem like it's really not that important. And Lord, I just ask if, if, if there are those here who need to do some business with you, Lord, that you would just give them humility to pause and to confess their sin, and then, Lord, come and take the Lord's table, Lord, because ultimately a contrite heart needs to celebrate the Lord's table. Lord, not because it gives us any extra grace, but, Lord, it is an opportunity for us to be reminded Of the gospel, of the fact that we are sinful creatures, drawn by your hand, given new life, and now able to live for your glory with your help. So, Lord, um, may we celebrate today. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. And let me invite you, if you are visiting with us today, if you've been with us for a while, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're